And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome, everybody, to the Yanks for Coming podcast. We're back after a summer break. My name is Carter Krishnire. He's Neil Blackman, and we're joined today by Nipun Chopra from Sock Takes and any number of other places. And we're going to discuss the elephant in the room. Let's just get right to it. The... North American Soccer League's antitrust lawsuit against the United States Soccer Federation. Neil, you're our resident attorney. Uh, let's turn it over to you for your interpretation of this filing. Obviously, the argument is that there are antitrust violations because of collusion in the marketplace between Major League Soccer and the United States Soccer Federation. How? The, the, there's collusion in the marketplace, which has resulted in in a uh, in antitrust violations. Um, and the argument is that that U.S. soccer has favored MLS, and that that has damaged uh, competition. What's interesting is that some of those favoritism arguments are sort of crafted in a way that suggests, you know, that. Uh, Marketplace. Well, I guess the I guess the, essentially market. It's different than a, a pro rel argument, right? Like it's a marketplace favoritism argument, um, which you know it's weird. It's it's almost it's almost a dangerous argument to make because they could just say, well, if you're not favoring anything, then you don't need pro rel, or a court could come out sort of that way. So it's sort of it's it's a different take than than what we've seen before. But not all that dissimilar from the sort of fundamental claims in the Frazier versus Major League Soccer uh, opinion, which we've, you know, people have been down this road before. Um, But I think that's where you can kind of turn it over to you because the question becomes, you know, is NASL really the best vehicle for this sort of lawsuit? Or would it have been better for maybe USL, which is a league where the fundamentals are a bit stronger, to kind of make these... Um, marketplace favoritism arguments that might have some merit. Um, but, you know, I mean, I can get into the ways that it's a little different than Frazier versus Major League Soccer, uh, you know, in a little bit, uh, if, if that's something to interest you guys. But I did want to kind of zero in on some of the things you you wrote on World Soccer Talk about uh, maybe how, you know, NESL has benefited from some favorable things that U.S. soccer has done to help NESL stay in Division Two status. So maybe we can kind of start there as a launching point. And there are obvious places where the laws can intersect with, you know, um, <laughs> the entities involved. Yeah, as uh, you referenced, Neil, I, I wrote an article for World Soccer Talk that talks about the previous seven years and that NASL has got gotten cut one break after another by the U.S. Soccer Federation uh, in terms of D2 sanctioning. They've been involved. They were involved in the crafting of these very D2 standards that they've fallen afoul of after seven seasons, uh, entering an eighth season that they're now complaining about. And that my interpretation is that USL, who is the party that is in direct competition with uh, with NASL, although you may not know that necessarily from reading the uh, full lawsuit. You might think it's Major League Soccer, but USL has not necessarily benefited from U.S. soccer's uh, alleged uh, favoritism uh, in, in, the, in this uh, lawsuit. Now, when you're talking about Major League Soccer, that's a whole other issue, and that's why, for some of us, the lawsuit is somewhat confusing, because um, I, I think there's clear favoritism. I think there's uh, been a, a certain degree of collusion between U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer. However, my points about NASL are that they have repeatedly failed uh, to to achieve the very standards, uh, meet the very standards they helped craft for a Division II league, and that's they, they've been due to self-inflicted wounds. They've had nothing to do with the U.S. Soccer Federation or Major League Soccer, and very little to do with USL. So 
that's where my my article, the basis of my article on World Soccer Talk, and Nipun, uh, we're privileged to have you with us because few, uh, if anyone in the um, U.S. soccer media has covered this subject as closely as you have over the course of the last 18 months, NASL sanctioning, uh, NASL expansion, USL expansion, USL sanctioning. You've uh, broken a couple big stories today, and uh, maybe we can start there with uh, uh, what you're hearing from your sources uh, within the NASL. What I'm hearing, uh, first of all, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, Karthik, you and I have done many, many, many podcasts together, and you'll have the pleasure chatting with you. Um, I think with the NASL, the way things are right now, is that they're doing a good, relatively good job, at least compared to last year, of not leaking as much information as last year. I think last year they were hemorrhaging information, even though you know they claimed that it was a uh, very well... PR run league, which it's not. Um, but having said that, it still is information coming out, and what we learned today, based on the lawsuit uh, that you talked about in the article, Karthik, you, you had the first real analysis of the news, which is really good. Uh, after that, we learned uh, this morning, actually last night, that, uh, the, that the vote was uh, not unanimous, uh, and that uh, this morning... I had been given. Uh, I was able to corroborate that with multiple sources that the vote was not unanimous. At the time, I didn't know with some certainty which teams did not vote for uh, uh, vote in approval of this litigation. Uh, my suspicions were North Carolina FC, Indy Eleven, and uh, South Subsequently, Neil Morris, who is arguably the best person covering the NASL USL in terms of uh, his podcast, uh, revealed that North Carolina, based on his sources, in fact, did not, uh, were not in support of this litigation. Uh, I have been able to corroborate that Indy 11 is not in, was not in support of this litigation. I've also been able to corroborate, not from a primary source, but from multiple sources who would know that Deltas are not in favor of this litigation. And I've been able to consistently source information that... Edmonton are not in approval of this information. So that's four current clubs. Half of the current clubs, uh, we're not talking about this, especially for next year, were not, uh, were not approving, or, or uh, maybe a better way to put it, did not say yes. In, in their case, it could have been backing out of the vote or saying no, but the fact of the matter is, at best, and, and, and I should point out, in Nipun, real quickly, in, in the case of North Carolina FC, per Neil Morris's reporting, North Carolina FC does not support the litigation. Not not only did they not vote for it, now it's been filed and they do not support it. That's how I interpreted Correct. his his article. Continue. Yeah, no, that was kind of the, the end of what I was uh, the information I have. Right now, uh, in, in preparation for talking to you guys, I did go over the the filing again uh, for a third time. And I feel like every time I read this, I pick up on these little nuances, which maybe I missed earlier on. And, and there's, there's a lot of interesting information in here. Um, and, you know, I, I'm glad that I'm able to talk to you guys. Kautik, you, you've covered this stuff longer than anyone else I know. And, you know, of course, with your background as someone uh, who understands this stuff way better than I do, I am, you know, the more I read it, I can't help but feel that what NASL has done is build some good inductive logic, but the problem seems to be the validity of some of the premise, uh, some of the premises they are positing. For example, you know the idea that the reason Rio OKC died was because uh, you know NASL didn't get D1, which is demonstrably false, or right. other ideas. But I'm curious, from your guys' perspective. Like, how plausible does this even seem now? Well, I thought, just from somebody with an antitrust background, I mean, and, and I have that, um, you know, I think there's the two most interesting things about it are, I, I think the most interesting argument is this argument that U.S. soccer doesn't really have any authority to govern professional soccer in this country, right? Like, that's a pretty fascinating take, which requires the challenge of FIFA, which to me... Um, is really interesting because it's almost the opposite of what Miami FC and Kingston Stockade tried to do, right? Like, their argument was essentially 
that, hey, U.S. soccer does run the show and they're not complying with FIFA. This lawsuit essentially throws the baby and the bathwater out and says, well, there's this law called the Stevens Act and that's a dubious law and U.S. soccer doesn't have the authority to, to, to govern these things anyway. The second argument that, and you know, interject if you think any of this is, is off or, or <laughs> you're not really sure that what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, but the second, the second one that fascinated me was, this argument that what U.S. soccer has done to sort of try to stabilize D2 is anti-competitive all of a sudden, right? And that's what mm-hmm. I thought was resonated so well with Cardick's column was like, look, U.S. soccer created this sort of weird year that we've just had to, to try to stabilize a second division. And now because NASL ends up on the short end of it, Suddenly, those things are anti-competitive. And now, don't get me wrong. Like, this is where Nipun would know way more than I would know. But I mean, certainly, the centralized structure of USL is problematic on that front, right? Because it prevents a merger, which probably would have stabilized everything for both sides. But or at least gotten us closer to being stable. But I think that's a really fascinating argument because this is not like NASL benefited from a lot of these moves that U.S. soccer made, it's just that they lost, basically in the marketplace, they were defeated. <laughs> um, largely because their business practices didn't work. <laughs> so the merits right. of the lawsuit, the merits of the lawsuit are problematic, which kind of stinks because Nipun's right, like, at least one or two of the arguments they're making are rather innovative and sort of distinct from the pathway we've been down before where there's binding precedent that's bad for them. Yeah, I find the whole argument that U.S. soccer is not empowered to govern um, the sport in this country a little bit counterintuitive considering there was that complaint uh, filed that you mentioned uh, at the uh, CAS, the claim filed by Miami FC and... Kingston Stockade, with Miami FC, of course, being an NASL member. But again, Miami FC probably is not the club, or the uh, and Ricardo Silva is probably not the owner driving the train on this. Napoon, is your sense uh, like mine that a lot of this is coming from the frustrations of the new owner of the New York Cosmos, a guy who's owned the club for all of eight months, uh, Rocco Camiso? I mean, I think. I think it's pretty clear at this point, Karthik, I think we can say with some degree of confidence that he is the leader of this. How much Ricardo Silva is involved is debatable. I think if he wasn't involved, you would have heard from him. Um, what, I, what I can say is based on every single NASL has passed you, they are being encouraged to not discuss this uh, with the media. There's basically the American version of a, a gag order on, on uh, communication with the media right now. And they're trying to uh, make sure that whatever communication comes out comes from the NASL league office, which is why we don't know the, the reality of how, how supportive Ricardo Silva is of this. You talked about it on, uh, on Reddit today, Karthik, and I can corroborate it that Ricardo Silva... And we both have heard that Ricardo Silva has spoken with USL uh, in my in my from my sourcing as, as recently as April of this year. I don't know if he's talked to them since, then, and I would li- I would like to think that based on the cast filing, there's a uh, uh, probably not more communication between NASL and uh, sorry Ricardo Silva, Miami FC, and USL. But who knows? You know, we, we we don't know the answer to it. So it is a reasonable question to speculate how committed Ricardo Silva is. Uh, with this particular filing that Rocco Camiso is leading, but I'm a betting man, I would think that he is in support of it as well, because ultimately both of them want uh, a, a way to get to D1, and let's not forget that not only is the one of the, uh, the requests of this lawsuit uh, injunction stopping loss of D2, it's also removal of all USSF requirements, and basically creating uh, uh, I don't know, uh, basically a free-for-all of the 
market to decide what's D1, D2. So basically, uh, actually, I shouldn't say they're not D1, D2, what, what works, but they want to get away from the raising of D1, D2 entirely. So that right. I think, in essence, Ricardo Silva uh, uh, in premise would be in support of this, but I, I don't know from any sourcing whether he is. Yeah, and in fact, I, I will... Um Acknowledged that that argument of uh, taking away divisional designations was was originated by a few people, including myself. And I've actually written about it several years ago in World Soccer Talk, and thought that it was a logical step forward to, at the time, uh, in, in my thinking, to prevent uh, USL from encroaching on NASL's territory. Now, uh, because USL was building, 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 wanting to regain second division status. Now, what in fact has happened is that USL has regained provisional second division status at the same time as the NASL has con- has committed numerous self-inflicted wounds. So it just repeated self-inflicted wounds that have nothing to do with the competition necessarily from USL or the uh, alleged uh, uh, impropriety of, of Major League Soccer and the United States Soccer Federation. So um, I had actually, I, they may even reference my article in World Soccer Talk from 2014 or 2015, whenever it was written, about this idea uh, if you're not having um, a, a, a pyramid where you have clear promotion and relegation and a clear first, second, third, and fourth division, that you have uh, divisional designations taken off of leagues and you simply designate leagues as professional leagues or semi-professional leagues. And that means that the three professional leagues would be NASL, USL, and Major League Soccer. The uh, non-professional leagues or the semi-pro leagues would be organized through the uh, United States Adult Soccer Association, USASA, and they would be given the uh, ability, and they are a member, obviously, of U.S. Soccer, of the United States Soccer Federation, to... Um, they would be given the jurisdiction to designate those leagues, those semi-professional leagues. That was my proposal a few years ago. Uh, but again, I mean, I think there are a lot of original arguments the NASL is making, as you said, Neil. Uh, I think that there are a number of things in this lawsuit that are compelling. But again, it's difficult to, and I don't know how a court um, views this, and maybe you can address this, Neil. It's difficult to um, take seriously a, a, a uh, plaintiff, someone who has filed this claim, who is saying that because of um, the unfair trade practices of Major League Soccer and the U.S. Soccer Federation, the monopolistic practices, that teams such as Rio OKC failed, probably presume, uh, Fort Lauderdale is, is in the complaint. Uh, there's also a uh, uh, discussion of some of these other issues, financial issues that teams have had. When it, each and every one of those cases were self-inflicted NASL wounds, which I think U.S. soccer's defense attorneys can very clearly point out. Um, how, how does yeah. that affect a, a judge? Well, look, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's two. Uh, and again, I haven't, I've, I've read it one and a half times, okay? So um, <laughs> that's my disclaimer. But the word conspiracy, I think, is in the complaint at least 25 times. It might be more than that. I stopped counting. Uh, so they kind of have to win their conspiracy arguments or collusion arguments that, that for whatever reason, uh, MLS was horrified of NESL. Like the fundamental argument that NESL makes in these conspiracy arguments is, hey, we were ready to go to D1 already, and U.S. soccer was in our way, right? Um, I don't know. This is where I think just there will be a significant. They have a significant fact problem. Like and this is why I keep coming back to your excellent article. I think is because uh, they didn't try to penetrate markets that Garber encircled, or that you know, quite frankly, USL uh, accessed. the The only market that I can think of where. You know, NASL did a good job, was Miami, and they were reluctant to access that market and largely abandoned Fort Lauderdale uh, in their hour of need. Um, whether that was because they needed to distance themselves from traffic or they actually believed the Brazilian investors that came in or or for whatever reason, um, it didn't really work. And, you know, it's not like MLS was ignoring Miami. It's just that we all, you, you and I both know, what a fiasco that is politically, but that's that's a whole other show. Um, 
So I think that's that's kind of an area where it's problematic for them to sort of win those arguments. And then I think secondarily, what's interesting and that what a judge will will certainly evaluate is, you know, if their if their goal with the permanent injunction against divisional sanction is Okay, consumers will sort it out and they'll decide what they prefer. Like for every person like me or, or you that's upset that NESL didn't work in South Florida just because we wanted a pro soccer club, right? Um, like consumers sort of have decided. <laughs> I mean, that, that right, would be right. a soccer's argument. Like consumers have decided. They've decided that your league isn't, isn't what they want to watch, that they'd prefer – to, to watch Major League Soccer and that they prefer to watch USL, and that's fine. Like, because that's I'll, I'll, I'll point this out. NASL early on made the argument that they had none of the restrictions, uh, structural restrictions that Major League Soccer or USL have on their clubs. They have none of those uh, uh, things that would prevent clubs from competing in the open market and signing whatever player in theory they want and, and doing whatever they want to market wherever they want. And clearly, uh, that didn't work. And so, and, and at the time, the thinking internally at NASL, and I was at NASL at the time, so I, I can speak to this, was, look, no one knows these divisional designations, D1, D2, D3. No one acknowledges them. Uh, it's only soccer geeks and people uh, in the legal department at the U.S. Soccer Federation that actually know uh, about these divisional designations. We have a team in Atlanta. We're the first division in Atlanta. We have a team in Fort Lauderdale. We're the first division in South Florida. We have a team in uh, Tampa Bay, another huge market, former MLS market. We're first division there. And yet, for some reason, um, after we had cre- thought uh, along those lines for a number of years, it became a situation where the New York Cosmos came into league and then started complaining about not being Division One and saying that they couldn't attract sponsors and players and all of these things because they weren't designated as a first division. Now, right. quite frankly, um, and now maybe soccer is more in the mainstream now, but quite frankly, if you go back about 12 years, there was confusion unless you were a diehard soccer fan as to whether Major League Soccer um, they had the name Major League Soccer. Whether they were the first division or USL first division, USL called themselves t- called their top league the USL first division was actually the first division because they had Montreal, uh, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, Rochester. They had about half or more than half of the kind of big clubs in the country at the time. So there's been confusion in the marketplace about these divisional designations. I think what you have now is a situation where Major League Soccer is a clear, established market leader. Now, did they, did they achieve that market leadership because of the um, unfair trade practices uh, that are alleged towards the U.S. Soccer Federation? NASL will have to try and prove that. But if you take the divisional designations off these leagues now, my belief is NA, it doesn't help NASL at all. They have a failing business. They have a failing business model. And they will be competing then head-to-head with MLS, who is an established market leader who may just choose to crush them within the season. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what the end game here is for NASL, which is a question for you, Nipun. Uh, what, what is the long-term vision and strategy for this league, given they've now embarked on this um, radical new course, for lack of a better word? So first of all, uh, to answer your question, Neil, the word conspiracy is cited 33 times in that article. And that doesn't even <laughs> account for what's like conspiratorial or anything like that. Just the word conspiracy is 33 times. So, yeah, Thank you. Know. Um, <laughs> now, after your question, Karthik, I don't think there's a vision. I mean, this is a conversation we go back to every year. What is NASL's vision? What is NASL's vision? And at the beginning of every season, we're told the same thing, which is that this year... The NHL owners are united, and this year there's a vision. At the start of this year, being 2017, you were told that the vision was collaboration and and uh, working together to promote soccer all over the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, three months later, uh, Neil Morris interviewed Camiso, and it was pretty clear that that was not the case uh, in terms of collaborating for the league. Um, 
and now they're basically suing and, him. And uh, his Tom Payne interview, uh, uh, where, where it was very clear around the same time. Remember, Neil interviewed uh, Tom Payne from Puerto Rico FC, and it was pretty oh, clear he had disdain right. for yep. one or two owners in the boardroom. Absolutely. And, and uh, I would, in, in Tom Payne's defense, for good reason, apparently, uh, so what, what happened. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I, there's, yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no vision, Karthik. Uh, right now, the vision is survival, as, as was the case at this time last year, when they were just trying to make sure that they survived. And I was repeatedly told last year, that, uh, that they felt that as long as we get to 2018, we'll be fine. As long as we get to 2018, we'll be fine, uh, which was this magical number. Well, I don't know if the will get to 2018, um, you know, the way, the way things are now. And even if the league gets to 2018, the same things are going to repeat. I mean, Rocco Camiso's litigation is not going to go away. The cash filing is not, not going to go away. So they're basically back to this... this abrasiveness in the soccer wars for, you know, lack of a phrase, a book that you wrote, Carpenter, that I recommend every U.S. soccer fan to read. I don't see any vision outside of survival right now. That's really the only thing that... Right, right. and, th and this is a point I, try, I tried to make, Napoon, is that uh, you keep hearing a lot of NASL's proponents say, well, they're going to add New Orleans, they're going to add Orange County, they're going to add Atlanta, they're going to add this one, they're going to add that one. But the track record of recent franchises that have entered, and they are franchises, okay, I, there's this NASL... Uh, rhetoric, which is, oh, we actually have clubs and the teams in MLS and USL are, are, are franchises. Well, actually, the teams in many of the teams in USL and MLS are more clubs than yours because they have a women's team and they have a youth setup and they have a reserve team and all of the things that are entailed in soccer clubs, whereas most of the MLS team, NASL teams are just franchises. But that's me on my soapbox for a minute. Um, but there is this, this, um, this feeling, I, I think, that um, all these new teams could come in. But as I point out in my article, four of the last five NASL startups have had significant problems uh, and, and uh, have either gone out of business or have barely limped by or have had to, the league has had to assume control. And the one exception is Miami FC, who then someone in the comments right away said, well, yeah, Miami FC has been fine, but as Neil referenced a little earlier, that helped kill off Fort Lauderdale, so basically five out of five have been problems, if you look at it that way, and that's, <laughs> that's true. So I think that there is... Let me, the NASL is out of chances. Let me ask you guys a question. Yeah, yeah, let me ask you a question, because you brought up something interesting, Karthik, about, uh, about the, the survival portion of it and, and the expansion portion portion of it, like you just talked about New Orleans and Atlanta and Detroit, were the three teams that were named uh, in the middle section of this litigation, um, uh, basically, hang on, I'll tell you the exact phrasing as I look it up. Uh, so it says in point number 184, specifically the NASL represented in its 2018 sanctions submission letter to the USSF that an ownership group in New Orleans had entered into a letter of intent to bring a new club to NASL, and the league was also in discussions with ownership groups in Detroit and Atlanta, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so those three teams have been named as basically teams that were on board. Now, instead of sticking this in your stupid-ass lawsuit, why didn't they announce those three teams? Because New Orleans would, would, would be the central time zone team, and with those three teams, they would be well above 12, they would be at 13. Right. Why not announce those teams? And then if USSF said, hey, we're demoting you to D2, that is an, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but based on logic, that is a clearly winnable lawsuit. Because if you get demoted at that point where you have the requisite number of teams, where you have the number of uh, uh, the right. central time zone, essentially you have zero waivers. That's the key point. You have yeah. zero waivers at that point. Then if you're demoted, you win that lawsuit, in my opinion. So why didn't they do that? It makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't answer that <laughs> can't question. Answer that, right. I, I, that's, that's a question that's come up. Um, you mentioned the excellent Neil Morris. Uh, he and I had a, had a private conversation about the... The, the thinking that we have now, which is, and it might be reflected in his reporting, that the NASL obviously must have foregone um, taking that appeal period after losing the, the, the D2 sanctioning. 
the 30 days or, or two weeks, whatever they had. It was, it was reported in some uh, areas as 30 days uh, until October 1st. Some people reported that it was two weeks. Whatever it was, they could have um, submitted a new application with those three teams you mentioned. And so what, what Neil Morris and I believe from talking to one another is that it probably means that um, they uh, have foregone another proposal for Division Two, and they've just decided to burn down the house and file a lawsuit. All right, it's just, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to me. I, I, I didn't, I, I spoke to Neil in a private conversation, too. I never believed that they had a chance to come back with this, and that's what this suggests, which uh, uh, one of their points, I guess, 180, I think 187 it was, where they talked about how the league didn't give them uh, a month's time to fix up. Uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Tellingly, the USSF treated the USL's Division II application completely different from the NSL's application. The USSF provisionally waived many requirements for USL and simply required it to provide a, quote, plan for bringing teams into compliance, end quote, with the Division II requirements within approximately a month's time, unlike the NSL, whose Division II application the USSF flatly denied. So I think from the get-go, I, I was surprised when we heard about this two weeks, one month stuff for NHL. For me, it was a done deal. But what knows me in a way is that if truly, if truly these three teams were on board, if truly Atlanta, New Orleans, and, um, and Detroit were on board, and you didn't announce them because you were twiddling your thumbs or because you felt... Uh, so there are only two explanations for me with this. One explanation is that NASL is incredibly incompetent, which is completely possible. The other one is that these three teams were not ready to go uh, in time, and that they're basically representing this this lack, this lie, this blatant lie in in their losses. Because yeah. if those teams were ready to go, there's no reasonable sense why the NASL doesn't uh, announce those teams and and basically meet all of USSF's requirements. It, it's absurd to me. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I think some of us, after we read that part, were at such a loss to explain this. And the only explanation we have is that they're now being used in the lawsuit, but they weren't ready to go. I, um, I'm under the impression Detroit City wants to see some stability in the NASL before they sign on. Now, I can't speak to Atlanta and New Orleans. I haven't spoken to anyone at those clubs. Uh, you may have. But uh, my, my impression from my sources around Detroit was that they have had serious negotiations with the, the NASL, but they're concerned about the instability of the league, which goes back, as, as I mentioned in my article, goes back to the whole San Francisco issue. I think that was the last straw. Particularly considering a year ago when NASL was in the same position and Tampa Bay and Ottawa, two of the foremost stable clubs in the league. I would say there were really only four stable clubs in NASL. And those four stable clubs were um, were Indy, uh, North Carolina, uh, Ottawa, and Tampa Bay. Two of those clubs say, you know what, we're, we're tired of this. We're leaving for whatever reasons that they left. They left. They went to USL. They went directly to the rival league. A year after San Antonio, the only club in the league that had actually built its own soccer-specific stadium, bailed and, uh, in a complicated legal maneuver, moved to USL with uh, with a different name and, and um, different ownership, but essentially the same club. So um, th- what we were being told at the time was, well, just you wait. We have a superstar club, um, and the way they built up... Um, and I was telling someone this the other day. The way they built up San Francisco was the same way we, and, and I say we because I worked at the league at the time and I was the director of communications, the way we built up San Antonio going into the 2012 season, knowing it was going to be a home run, knowing we were going to get uh, seven or 8,000 people a game, um, realizing they might have a chance to actually have enough political support and, and uh, money uh, locally to build their own stadium, which they did. They were the only NASL team to date that has built its own soccer-specific stadium. Um, so San Francisco was built up very much the same way, guys. And I think U.S. soccer even built, uh, bought into some of that rhetoric. And many in the media, ourselves included, bought into that. And San Francisco is the yes, biggest no, dog. I'm, I am 100% yeah. guilty of this. 100% guilty. Yeah, I, I was too. Because I saw the pattern the same way that we had built up San Antonio. They were building up San Francisco. So I thought... Okay, this is the new San Antonio Scorpions. This is the new superstar team in the league for all the talk of the Cosmos, etc. 
we've had San we've had San Antonio, we've had Indy, uh, and now we're gonna have San Francisco. Sure. These are the star teams, right? And you had to think you had you saw a little Sacramento Republic too, right? Right. And you thought you thought how how could this go wrong? Yeah. Um. And so you know, yeah. As to Atlanta, I, I can tell you that their two fundamental concerns there were stadium and and location of said stadium. So where they where they were going to play was everything because if they were outside the perimeter, if you know anything about Atlanta. Uh, you know, and they, they pretty much had, would damn themselves to ruin. Um, but there were enough people who were soccer mad in that city that were like, well, yeah, we would go to both. <laughs> until, until about six weeks ago, I was hearing from Atlanta personnel, I'd say twice a week on average. In the last six weeks, I have sent messages, emails, Twitter messages. I have heard absolutely nothing from Atlanta, and I think it's uh, I think it's uh, indicative of um, that things aren't all great over there. Um, so, in terms of Detroit, I, from my understanding, there's still an issue with the principal owner, which would mean that they wouldn't qualify for D2 requirements. And uh, in terms of uh, New Orleans, I, I really have no idea. I, I think. The best the person who knows the answer to that is Chris uh, Kiblan from Victor uh, Press. I have no idea what's going on there. Right. Yeah, I think I so, think New Orleans is an interesting change, though, for NASL potentially because it would be the first market they've entered into in a while that, uh, well, other than Jacksonville, that does not meet the D one requirements, the proposed D one requirement of of two million metro area for a D1 team. So that that's actually Let, let's, maybe a bit of a refreshing change that they're going after a legitimate D2 market. But uh, go on. Yeah. I mean, that might be that might be something we want to isolate too and talk about real quick is is D1 requirements because I think like when I look at this when I look at this complaint I say the best portions of this complaint are the anti-competitive arguments about division 1 status. And like I've heard I've heard the argument that, you know, maybe some of these regulations are actually pro-competitive because they assure that clubs that couldn't punch their way don't go out of business, right? Um, and, and I guess, you know, from a you know, purely market <laughs> theoretical standpoint, that's probably true. But, but uh, it's interesting. When a lot of these USL owners that broke – had a hand in crafting some of these standards, right, in 2010, I think. So it, it becomes, you know, interesting that now the ones that are left are saying, hey, these standards are bad. Um, the 2 million, for example, there's only 30 cities that would ever meet that requirement. But I think that one's less market problematic because you could get a waiver, and that's right. a pretty easy argument for U.S. soccer to make compared to, say, you know the the ownership arguments where you have to have either what is it seventy million or a single owner with forty million. Yes, um, and I think and I think it's not or either it's and right. Like there has to be a majority owner who has a forty million dollar net worth and an ownership group value of seventy million. So the Green Bay Packers, for example, would not be able to play in MLS. Correct. Uh, but but um. You know, and maybe they would. Maybe they, maybe they somehow would. would I'm sure they'd get they a would waiver. Meet the second requirement. Right. 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 They would meet the second requirement, and maybe there's. I'm sure there's an investor, a majority investor, in the Green Bay Packers that's worth more than forty million dollars, and so you access it that way. But, but these are the kinds of standards that are bad, right? And so that's an interesting aspect to challenge. But that gets back into what is the goal of the. The lawsuit, and this was the most confusing thing to me, is that if you're seeking a permanent injunction against divisional sanction, then what's the pathway to pro-rel, which a month and a half ago, a month and a half ago, pro-rel, pro-rel was, was your, you know, Ark of the Covenant. It was, hey, we're going to go to Switzerland and we're going to litigate this out. So now you... And maybe that's the perfect metaphor for the dysfunction of the NASL, right? Right, right. Is that Rocco and the Cosmos, <laughs> Rocco and the Cosmos vision is, hey, man, if it weren't for U.S. soccer, we would be D1. 
And also, divisional sanctioning is stupid because we're not the one. Whereas, like, Miami SC is sort of like, hey, we're making a lot of money down in here. And, um, you know, or we're willing to lose a lot of money either way, either yeah, way right, you want to look at it. Whichever way you look at it. And, um, and uh, we think we should have pro-rel because our team is pretty good. And, like, if you saw the Galaxy right. play in Atlanta tonight, you can't tell me we wouldn't work them all over the field most nights. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, you know, I hate to be snarky about it, but to some extent, uh, it is kind of the perfect metaphor for the dysfunction of the NASL that within two months, you have lawsuits that are functionally an opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and are irreconcilable. I mean, it's but... Oh, sorry. That I was just going to say uh, that they're ir- irreconcilable in terms of their outcomes, r- right? I mean, if this lawsuit that's been filed in uh, U.S. court, if, if this uh, is successful, then the NASL is essentially blown up or the court system will blow up the structure which would make what uh, Miami FC and their, their partner, Kinston Stockade, but Miami FC being the important party here in NASL, a member of the NASL LLC, what they're trying to put in place through that CAS complaint, uh, impossible to achieve. Sure. No, I, I, I agree, but I will say this. I think it's important for us to recognize that the ProRel filing is not an NASL-sponsored filing, although we all know. No, yeah, 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 right. That's That's... That's very true. In fact, that, that is fair. I, I should point out the league went yeah. to great pains the morning. It's funny because I haven't heard from the league or anyone in the league uh, since this, but uh, the league went to great pains the morning that that CAS claim was filed in the Poon, and they probably did the same thing with you to reach out to me and tell me very uh, matter-of-factly, this is not a league uh, initiative. It is a single team in our league. Uh, acting independently because we're an independent league, uh, we have independent clubs, all that jazz that they they love to uh, hang their hat on. So yes, that is correct, Nipun. You're right, and yeah. we should remember that. Yeah, and uh, to be fair, like I, I'm not arguing against your point, Neil, because everyone knows that all the NHL was, all the teams want support of that because ultimately all of them want, most of them want Pro-Rel and want to have the ability to be D1. But it is right. a pedantic distinction. Speaking of the pedantic distinction. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, everything I've talked to people on Twitter and Reddit and, and, and surprisingly in real life too uh, about this filing, it seems to me that there seems to be this idea that, um, that so, okay, let me put it this way. If we start with the premise that NASL, US, sorry, MLS, USL, and, M, uh, and uh, USSF are in cahoots, I think this case makes a lot of sense. But if you take a step back, you take a step back and you come in from fresh eyes and say, I am going to go in objectively, you can dismiss everything in this case as conjecture and, and circumstance and, and um, you know, and, and like coincidence. So, for example, you know, you, you were talking about the change, the sliding scale, the increasing scale of requirements for uh, D1, which is an absolutely fair point. They've changed so much. From 
and this one is linked to this one. Therefore, this other one is benefiting from the linkage between this one and that one. Party A and B have a relationship. Party A and C have a relationship. Therefore, B and C must have a relationship. I can tell you from just following various aspects of business, that's not true. I'll give you this one example. Um, the One World Alliance, if you fly American Airlines or British Airways. I fly British Airways a lot. American Airlines and British Airways have a joint venture. Uh, American Airlines has a joint venture with Qantas Airways, which is an Australian airline. Qantas used to have a joint venture with British Airways, but it broke down in acrimony, and they now are alliance partners with Emirates, who is a... Um, airline that American Airlines, who is their other joint venture partner, has filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Transportation against. And British Airways, who is the other joint venture partner, has no relationship with Emirates or Qantas. So um, the, 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 these are the sorts of things just in business. That was the first example that came to mind. But you cannot make some of the leaps of faith and the assumptions they made, which to me, once again, read like what you see on Reddit. And I think there is a clear um, case to be made, and I think, Neil, you're right, that the strongest point of it is the D1 arbitrary standards and Major League Soccer having a business relationship with US so the U.S. Soccer Federation that may prejudice the, the, the governing body toward them. Um, however, once again, I, I have to point out that this has been filed after NASL has been denied D2 sanctioning, and their competition is USL, and I... And maybe your reporting is a little different than this, Napoon. I find I found absolutely no evidence, except for that one passage that NASL put in there about USL being given 30 days to fix their application, which um, was not accepted by U.S. Soccer, was essentially tabled until the next board meeting, uh, whereas NASL's was rejected. I see no other evidence, and based on my reporting, actually it might be to the contrary, no other evidence that USL who's the party that ML, that NASL is competing with at this point has, has gotten favorable treatment from U.S. soccer just because. Right. Um, so that that's, to me, the big problem with the whole thing. Uh, I, I totally agree. Uh, it's that same passageway also says that USL seems to have been granted 20 waivers. It's unclear to me, and I tried to figure this out with Neil on, on Neil Morris on Twitter, uh, whether that means that they're being awarded 20 waivers for next year or they were told 20 waivers that you need to fix up in this one month or what is exactly what that means. Because the phrasing in that, and Neil, you, you're better to interpret this than I, than I can, but the way it seems to me is that it, 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 the argument being made suggests that USL is going to get 20 waivers for next year as well. And if that is true, I think, again, that is some credence to the idea that there is imbalance between the valuation of waivers for NASL and valuation for waivers for USL. Well, yeah. Sorry. Oh, I mean, sorry, from, from, a, from a technical standpoint, because yes, it's just yes. a complaint, you know, there, there are, there are going to be some things that are a little less clear. And then potentially, you know, you deal with, with dismissal and then maybe a second complaint where they kind of clarify what that legal language means. So I think, because I'm reading it, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's subject to, to, I think, multiple interpretations. And, you know, I, I would just say at this point, essentially their USL argument is like USL sides have some affiliations with the yeah. MLS and they, they might be getting some waivers. So uh, obviously yeah. US soccer likes them more. And that might yeah, be enough exactly. at the complaint so, stage, right? <laughs> and, and I mean, uh, you, you you summarized it really well. Ultimately, all that, even if what I was saying was true, ultimately it would just show that there was some positive bias from from USSF towards USL in this one particular situation. It does. It cannot be extrapolated to this huge conspiracy that involves MLS and USSF and USL trying to put NASL out of business. Because even if what I was saying was true, it could simply be because USSF just got tired of NASL asking for waivers. I mean, that, it's as simple as that. So the, the, right. the devil in the details. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, so the Buddha, that's an, such an important point. I want to repeat that. NASL has been getting waiver after waiver after waiver for seven years. Uh, the USL... Uh, when it appeared hey, Kartik, not according to NASL rising, <laughs> <laughs> right? 
Um, yeah, which, by the way, is a play on USL Rising, their, 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 uh, their motto, their, uh, their, their slogan. But um, the, the point being that USL dropped down to Division Three status in 2010 and 2011 because uh, they could not meet the D2 standards, and, and they were feeling... Quite honestly, remembering that period and being on the NASL side of it, but understanding, having friends on the other side I was talking to, they were aggrieved. And I have to be honest, we were kind of concerned USL might file a lawsuit against us and the U.S. Soccer Federation. They did not. They just took their medicine, went down to D3, regrouped, consolidated, and, and they're back in a strong position. Um, I think what NASL is 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 doing is selectively, as you said, Nipun, they're talking about this specific filing, but... You, I, the, the two things that are important is I think U.S. soccer got tired of giving NASL waiver after waiver after waiver, year after year. Standards the NASL had helped uh, craft, which said they would be at a certain point after three years. They didn't meet that target. They would be at a certain point after five years. After seven years, they still haven't met those five-year targets, and they've kept letting them slide on it. And then you add in the San Francisco situation. I think they just got tired of it, to be honest with you. Now, um, yeah. There are things in the complaint that, um, as you mentioned, Neil, that are, are, I think, very legally sound and and could give NASL an opportunity uh, in in the court of law to get some sort of uh, uh, relief from the courts. But I still believe, and I'm going to go on the record and say this again, that U.S. soccer, who I am very critical of normally, everybody knows that, acted properly in rejecting the NASL's application for D2 status for 2018. I have... I, I, and I'm stunned that actually Sunil Gulati and U.S. Soccer were so decisive because part of the reason I've been so critical of U.S. Soccer is they haven't shown leadership. They haven't been decisive. They've made countless mistakes in how they govern the pro leagues. And that was one of the first times I, I looked up and said, you know what? Sunil's showing some some pretty amazing leadership. And, and Sure. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, look. I, yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think... I think that's that's what's so interesting about this complaint to me strikes me as like uh, a lot of and, and this is a, a strategy that really talented lawyers use, right? Like sometimes you plead as many things as you can in a complaint, and you just kind of see what gets whittled away. Yeah, what's this? And then and then there's a secondary kind of com- a complaint that can follow it where you now have isolated your more uh, what meritorious arguments, I guess. Um, and I think that might be it. I mean, maybe that's that's what they have to do, like just sort of narrow it down to a sanctioning lawsuit uh, because these conspiracy arguments, not only are they, they hurt on fact issues, right? I mean, right. In, in, in an antitrust lawsuit, you have to win that there's some sort of exclusive territory that is controlled by the primary defendant. In this case, um, the U.S. Soccer Federation. Okay? What's the market? <laughs> what market is alleged? Is it is it soccer in the United States? Because in that case, um, guess what? U.S. Soccer has a lot of competitors. Look at the heck standings. Right, right. <laughs> um, watch what was on TV today. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of competition, whether it's from from the Mexican league. Yeah, the it's the league uh, cup. It's La Liga, yeah. Real Madrid, right? And so U.S. Soccer could argue that that they are. US Soccer, I mean, they really might no. They, and not only could U.S. Soccer argue that, like I could see because Mifun made um, the really astute point that. The judges are going to have these preconceived biases, right? So if he sits back or she sits back and and sort of evaluates this, they might lose on market. Like, right. <laughs> a judge might go, uh, U.S. Soccer doesn't control this market. Bye. Your your business model failed. Sorry. Right. Yeah. It's called it's called capitalism. Bad. That is scary. <laughs> right. It depends on the perspective of the judge. If they take a very narrow folk uh, interpretation of soccer in the United States being 
all of the, the clubs that are organized under the U.S. soccer umbrella, or if they look at the macro, what's on television, what if they look at uh, other sports and entertainment that's competing with U.S. soccer? U.S. soccer is just one entity competing not only with the Premier League and La Liga and everything and, the, and Liga Mekis on, on television, but also uh, with the NFL and the NBA and, and, and uh, various movies and television programs. Yeah, I think where, where they filed it, also, their market arguments are more problematic for them. Okay, and, and what I mean by that is if you go to Indianapolis and file that sucker in the seventh, all right, you're going to deal with a lot of judges that are appointed that might see those markets a lot more narrowly. Okay, but, you know, you get a judge that, that does take a more macro view and says, hey, here in New York City, uh, these are all the different places. I can walk down Amsterdam Avenue and get a good idea of the market for soccer in the United States. And let me tell you what it isn't controlled by, Soccer House. Right? So, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I think there's a lot of of sort of it's almost like uh, the early rounds of a, of a boxing match back before that sport was entirely corrupted. Sorry, I'm still a little bitter about Saturday, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the feeling out process, this complaint strikes me as that. It strikes me as like if their lawyers are as talented as I think they are, you know, they're just trying to, to access what their best arguments are. And then maybe by the time they file an amended complaint, it looks a little different. Stay tuned would be my, my lawyer message. Napoon, final thoughts. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, you know, news is leaking uh, regularly. I think there'll be more news in the next upcoming days. I think stay tuned is probably uh, the best final thought there is. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think... Uh, uh, what we're bringing you is the best podcast we can for this week, but by next Monday, this could be a dated conversation. So stay tuned, everyone. That's the best advice. Thank you, Nipun, for joining us. Um, Thank and, you, Nipun. And Thank where, you so much. And Nipun, where can we find your work online? Uh, absolute pleasure talking to you guys anytime. Uh, you can find my work on Soft Takes. Uh, that's Soft Takes on Twitter. Um, we are trying to... Uh, our business model is that we... Uh, uh, we always pay our contributors because we feel like, uh, you know, good quality content is pretty lacking sometimes in lower league soccer. So we want to make sure that people who contribute for us are remunerated for that content. Uh, and for that, we have a Patreon. So if you're in- interested in supporting lower league soccer coverage, subscribe to our, or uh, become a patron for uh, Stock Takes. And we, we really appreciate it. And where, where can they do that, just so everybody knows? Yeah, so if you go to Softtakes website, I actually have to pull up the Patreon page, but I think it's com slash Patreon. But if you go to Softtakes.com website, I think on the front page itself, there's a, there's a link to the Patreon page. There's a link. Beautiful. Fantastic. And how do, they, how do, people, how do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me at Nipunchopper7, but I don't think I provide too much information that someone like Karthik and Neil would not provide you. So, uh, if you want to come for the hot soccer take, you can stop by. Or I can, or you'll find me talking about Man United or talking about neuroscience. So, uh, I'm kind of one of many good followers on Twitter. Yes, I, I, I would concur with that. Definitely follow Napoon if you want lower league information Absolutely. and Manchester United fans being called out by another Manchester United fan. Like me with Manchester City fans calling out Manchester City fans. Eerily similar. So, uh, Napoon, one last question before we wrap this up. Does the U.S. qualify for the World Cup? Oof, oof, loaded question. Uh, I, think, I think so, yes. I think so, yes. In, in a playoff? I, in a playoff. That's what I was going to add. Okay. I think it would be in a playoff. Yeah. What do you guys think? Uh, I love it. I love it. Stay tuned, Napoon. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll have our <laughs> predictions before uh, the Panama game. But you, you are, you, I think you are probably on the right track of what I'm thinking. I'm You're at, you hit that one down the fairway. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait to find out. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thank pleasure. You. And, th- and, th- and thank, thank you, you. And once again for, for Neil on Cardic. Uh, we will catch you next week. We'll be back with you regularly, weekly. Uh, through the fall and uh, through this U.S. qualifying, this excruciating U.S. qualifying run, including potentially an intercontinental playoff. Stay tuned.
reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at YanksAreComing.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or uh, other podcast uh, mechanisms. And you can follow Neil at, at NWBlackman on Twitter. And I'm at KKFLA737. So until next time. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile. And there's a whole lot to love. Like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile. The most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-Mobile to learn more or visit a store today.